Okay, so here's the problem. I don't mean to suggest that there's only one. I mean, we're talking Jewish and Israeli history here, so there's definitely a lot of problems. But today's problem is we have this really amazing idea, the recreation of the Jewish homeland in Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. We've got a whole movement. We're gaining support across Europe. The project is advancing. And although the path is long, we can see that history is in the making here. But there's this thing. Who's going to live in this Jewish state? Because the land of Israel these days is a hot, rocky, swampy, impoverished backwater of the Middle East without an economy to its name. Someone has to go there and build out this Jewish state through sheer force of strength and willpower. Who is going to do it? This is the problem that the Zionists were confronted with from the beginnings of the movement in the second half of the 1800s. Of the thousands of European Jews who were convinced to emigrate to Palestine, only a few actually ended up staying, because life there was incredibly hard. The happy-go-lucky, idealistic, Twitter-pated fun of the birthright trip was a hundred years into the future, and in the meantime was a mass of Jews who, let's be honest, didn't really have a clue what they were doing. But the Zionists had an answer for what kind of Jews they were looking for. They were going to create new Jews. That's capital N, capital J. Jews who were physically strong, burning with idealism and practical know-how. Jews who were young, Jews who were women, Jews who could fight, Jews who could work, and Jews who would reject the stern religiosity of Orthodox Judaism and instead nurture a spirituality connected to the land of the Torah. Zionism, then, it wasn't just an effort to create a Jewish state. It was also a movement to create an entirely new Jew. Welcome back to Jew I Don't Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Okay, so first of all, it should be noted that not everyone was on board with this whole idea. Zionism was very much a minority movement within the global Jewish community. Far from everyone in the Jewish world was with this effort. In fact, there was significant opposition. The question is why? Well, some of the objection to Zionism came from the Orthodox Jews of Eastern Europe. They weren't opposed to the creation of a Jewish state, but they were opposed to the creation of a Jewish state by humans. That is, in their view, the Jewish homeland in Israel could only be brought about through a miracle from God. It couldn't be a human endeavor involving politics and international treaties like what Herzl was talking about. They especially refused to countenance a Jewish state that looked like Herzl's vision of an essentially secular European-style society. A complete perversion of the deeply religious and spiritual idea of the Jewish return from exile. The return of the Jewish people to sovereignty in the Holy Land was part of God's larger plan for humanity, so its creation couldn't happen until the coming of the Messiah and the redemption of humanity the end of the world. So many, though not all, of the prominent Orthodox leaders of Eastern Europe refuse to support the Zionist movement. And even today there exists Orthodox Israelis who reject that Israeli identity as illegitimate, even though they live there. There was opposition too amongst secular Jews, especially those in Western Europe, who felt that despite the occasional anti-Semitic flare-up, they were safe and assimilated and cultured. So why give that up? The richest Jews, 
Those who funded small settlements in Palestine and whose money and support would later be essential to the Zionist goal, they were also against Herzl's grand vision. While they were happy to support a few Jews doing agricultural work in Palestine, they thought that Herzl was rocking the boat too much, and that such a big vision was doomed to fail. There was still another theory out there that said that Jews would actually end up being fine in Europe as long as they had some degree of autonomy within their communities. Led by a Russian Jewish historian named Simon Dubnow, this idea, it was called Jewish autonomism, said that the Jewish future depended on them remaining spiritually and culturally strong wherever they lived. If agreements could be struck with local political powers to ensure Jewish communal self-rule, then Jews could reject assimilation and essentially have their own mini homelands wherever they were in Europe. The Holocaust would later permanently destroy the idea of autonomism, but at the turn of the century, a lot of Jews believed in it. Also opposed were American Jews. Not everyone, of course, but for many Jewish Americans in the late 1800s, the way to save the Jews of Europe wasn't to create a new homeland in the Middle East, but to just move to the new one that already exists, the United States. With its constitutional democracy, equal rights, freedom and prosperity, and the Statue of Liberty offering refuge to the huddled masses, American Jews felt then, and many still do today, that there's no reason to think that Jews won't forever be safe and secure here, free to practice Judaism and celebrate Jewish culture. The history of American Judaism, it's, I mean, it's worthy of its own entirely separate podcast, and I'm not really going to get too much into it. But many American Jews looked at what Zionism was trying to achieve and said, hey, guys, we already did that. We're here in America. Come on down. All of this meant that Zionism in the early 1900s, late 1800s, was primarily a mass movement of secular, poor, or middle-class Jews from Eastern Europe. This is going to have really important implications for how the early state of Israel would come into being, who's going to lead it, how its society is going to be constructed. That is to say, Israel would very much reflect the values, ideas, and memories of a certain type of Jew. And that's the case even today, where the Ashkenazi Jews from Europe are often seen as the elites, and the Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews from North Africa and the Middle East tend to struggle against a kind of second-class status. This has huge implications for Israeli politics, and we'll be talking about all that, you know, eventually, if I even ever finish this podcast, which clearly is, doesn't seem to be happening. But anyway, despite all these objections, Zionism was in ascendance, and a few brave Jews were already making the journey to Palestine. They went to build small settlements, mostly agricultural, and a few of what we would today call artist colonies as well. We'll talk about them more another time. But the point is that these Jews weren't going to some already established infrastructure. They had to work seriously hard just to get a single vegetable out of the ground to eat. And remember, these mostly Eastern European Jews, they weren't farmers. And you've been to Israel, they're not used to that kind of heat. And the roughness of that lifestyle often required them to shed the thousand plus years of religious traditions in which they had been raised in Europe in order to adapt to the harsh conditions necessary to drag a state and society out of the sand and rocks of Eretz Yisrael. What we need is a new Jew. We need someone whose Judaism is based on physical strength, a renewed spirituality, and an unrelenting focus on the land. 
This effort on creating the new Jew is going to add another branch to our Zionist redwood tree, alongside Herzl's political Zionism and Ahad Ha'am's cultural Zionism. So, within the Zionist movement, Herzl had a bestie. His name was Max Nordau. Max Nordau was born into an Orthodox Jewish family, but as a teenager rejected his Jewish identity and became an assimilated German and well-known writer and philosopher. But like Herzl, the Dreyfus Affair in France reawakened his Jewish identity when he saw how anti-Semitism imperiled the Jews of Europe. He became a prominent Zionist, kind of a king's hand to Herzl, and it was Nordau who infused the first Zionist Congress and the Zionist movement with democratic ideals around representation and voting in order to prevent the movement from becoming just another project of the so-called elite Jews. At the Second Zionist Congress in 1898, Nordau coined a new term, muscular Judaism. This new muscle Jew is how it sounds, strong, physically fit and athletic, proud, young, men, and importantly, women, the muscle Jew stands in contrast to the diaspora Jew, that pale, weak intellectual Jew of the European shtetl, those small villages where millions of Jews were subject to persecution and poverty. I mean, I say all this while I'm surrounded by like a whole bunch of intellectual books on Israeli history, and I haven't been to the gym in like a week. So yeah, I, I hear you, Max. I hear you. Nordau's ideas were part of this effort to look deep into the Jewish past for inspiration. We want to reestablish the Jewish state in our ancient homeland, not just because that's where we come from, but also because that's where the Jew was strong. When the temple existed in Jerusalem before the Romans came, we were warriors. But since then, we have beholden ourselves to our books, said Max Nordau. Others succeeded in degenerating us physically, he said. They had the ghetto Jews of the Middle Ages into sorrowful weaklings, haggard and unable to defend ourselves in the narrow alleyways of the ghetto. What is needed now, he said, is, I kid you not, exercise. Nordau envisioned Hebrew sports clubs that would propel Jews into athletics. With achievement in sport, he said, our self-confidence will improve. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. Hebrew sports clubs were created all over Europe, and there are cases of Jews going on to win medals in local competitions and really boosting self-confidence. But it wasn't just about strength for the sake of being physically strong. It was also about reviving the Jewish spirit, which was beaten down by centuries of persecution in Europe. The contemporary Israeli journalist Ari Shavit writes that Zionism was a movement of orphans. The unwanted sons and daughters of Christian Europe, he writes, fled the hatred of their surrogate mother and discovered that they were alone in the world. Having lost their homeland of Europe, he says, they had to invent another. So, we take these new Jews, these physically strong young Jews, leaving their homes and their families in Europe and making their way to Palestine for a hard scrabble life in an attempt at saving Judaism. And here's where we add another branch to our Zionist tree, a branch called Labor Zionism. <laughs> What we're going to do with these young new Jews, how we're going to build their bodies, revive their Jewish spirits, and create a new Jewish homeland is through labor. As in physical agricultural labor. 
This idea was led by Aaron David Gordon, usually just called A.D. Gordon, who wasn't the first to come up with this idea, but he was its driving philosopher. His philosophy has been called a religion of labor, even though he wasn't really big on that term religion. But the idea was that the new Jew would be created by working the land. Through the hard labor of agricultural work, the new Jew would connect with nature and would invigorate his and her creativity and spirituality. A.D. Gordon said, It is labor which binds a people to its soil and to its national culture. So it wasn't just leaving Europe from the land of Israel. It wasn't just about getting exercise and building muscles. It wasn't just about shedding the Orthodox Jewish traditions of Europe. It was about rejuvenating the Jewish people through labor, in which they would be forced to work together in harmony. And out of this harmony and shared purpose and shared hard work will be a reawakening of the Jewish spirit in a new form and a new person. This is why I make my participants load the bus on birthright. It's labor Zionism in action, to connect them to Israel through hard labor and to work together in social harmony to get us to our next hotel. It's like that like hidden educational thing that happens to you even though you don't know that it's going on. Although on my last trip, several of you decided to bring your suitcases down to the lobby and then just leave them there. You know who you are, June bus. Apparently, you thought someone else would just happily drag your luggage out to the bus and load it. I don't know if you remember, while you guys went to the military cemetery in Jerusalem for a compelling and emotional tour, I had to go back to the hotel with the bus driver and find and load your suitcases all by myself. You are terrible Zionist socialists. But anyway... This worldview, this joining of socialism with physical labor, is the basic premise behind labor Zionism. It profoundly influenced Israeli life, and still does, most visibly through the kibbutz. The kibbutz is where the ideals of socialism and labor and culture would be practiced, and it became the idealized and romanticized image of the strong Israeli Jew, and again, in many ways it still is. In time, labor Zionism would come to be the dominant branch of the Zionist tree, but we'll get to that in another episode. This concept of the new Jew, it didn't form all at once. I mean, we're talking about things evolving over decades, beginning around the 1870s and continuing at least until Israel was created in 1948. There were so many variations. Like I've said before, we shouldn't necessarily imagine the Zionist tree as a distinct branches jutting out in separate directions. A lot of them were intertwined. Political Zionism was connected with labor Zionism, which was connected with cultural Zionism. And although each of these mini Zionist movements had different ideologies and leaders, they were all evolving together. Here's the big, big picture. What is happening here, and I think this is the point I'm trying to convey with this whole series on Zionism, is that Jewish history is being made. Actually, I think more accurate, it might be to say that this is an effort to make Jewish history. What is happening is something that hasn't really happened for around 18 centuries, which is a concerted and organized effort to move Judaism and the Jewish people into the next phase of history. We often look at the year 70 of the Common Era as a time when everything about Judaism and Jewish life changed. In that year, the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem around which Judaism revolved. It was a Judaism of intense ritual, animal sacrifices, a very centralized hierarchy with defined roles for everyone. But afterwards, Jews were forced to contend with a culture that no longer had those things. 
So they came up with what we today call rabbinic Judaism. It was created by these extraordinary and ordinary teachers called rabbis, who reimagined, reformed, and rewrote Jewish law and culture, who came up with the Talmud, and who rebuilt Judaism for what they recognized was a new phase of history. It didn't happen overnight, it took a few hundred years, but we can say that there existed one kind of Judaism before the year 70, and a different kind after. And so when I'm talking about Zionism here, today's episode and the last few, I'm looking at what I see as a similar situation. In a few hundred years or a few thousand, I think we're going to put the years 1945 to 1948 in the same category as the year 70, when there was a Judaism that existed before the 1940s and a Judaism that came afterwards. These early Zionist thinkers and leaders like Herzl and Ahad Ha'am and A.D. Gordon and others, they were onto something. They had an inkling that a new phase of Jewish history was coming. They didn't have the perspective that we have, that the Holocaust happened and virtually destroyed Jewish life in Europe, but they had a sense that it was coming. So all these ideas and philosophies and ideologies and tree branches, they're all an effort to craft a new form of Judaism and also a new kind of Jew. These Zionists are talking out loud almost. They're trying to imagine what this new form of Judaism will look like and who this new Jew will be. Some think it's going to be a replica of European life just in Palestine, like Herzl and the political Zionists. Others thought that it will be a mostly small community of a few Jews living very cultural Jewish lives away from the strict and confining orthodoxy of Europe. That's Ahad Ha'am and the cultural Zionists. Others thought that it was going to be this new Jew toiling away at hard labor in order to develop a creative and lasting bond with the land of Israel. That's the labor Zionists and A.D. Gordon. Some thought we needed to completely disown our European Jewish past in order to embrace this new form of Jewish life. Get rid of all the traditions and culture that we had built up for the last 2,000 years. No more observing of Jewish law. No more speaking in Yiddish. Others said, no, no, we need to hang on to our history, but just embrace a new focus on the land. Some said we should become socialists in this new whole land. Others said, no, 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 we shouldn't do that. So Zionism can't be reduced to a single idea or a single Israeli policy. It's much bigger than that. It's an effort to begin to realize a whole new phase of Jewish history, which would require a whole new kind of Jew to carry it out. When the rabbis set out to remake Judaism in those first few centuries of the Common Era, they did so with the knowledge that the temple had been destroyed and that a huge vacuum had been left. But the Zionists are operating from foresight, not hindsight. They didn't know what we know today, that the Holocaust would culminate in 1945, followed just three years later by the creation of Israel. Yet they had a sense that this reckoning was coming. They acted as though Judaism and the Jews were together heading for some kind of historical cliff. Zionism was an effort to prepare the Jewish people for this new phase of history, to figure out what from our past could be salvaged and carried forward, and what had to be created from scratch. And so, what we have emerging at this point in the late 1800s and early 1900s are different clumps of ideas and theories manifesting themselves in Eretz Yisrael. Small cities are popping up, socialist villages are being built, land is being cleared for agriculture, New kinds of music, dance, and social interactions are developing. There's an old language that's being renewed, Hebrew. All of these leaves and branches are creating this new world, this new Jewish culture, and a new kind of Jew. And all of these things are Zionism. And all of these things contribute to the Israel that eventually emerges and the Israel that we have today. <laughs>
Okay, so we've got these theories about what kind of homeland we want to build, and we have these ideas about what kinds of Jews we want to populate it. It's time to start sending people over to Palestine to begin developing this land and living out these idealized notions of the new Jew. But just as we started this episode with a problem, we're going to conclude with another one, and it's one you all know. It's not like this land is empty. There are Arabs there. How will Zionism respond to the Arabs? We'll get into that next time.